I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, Joe talks with Boots Riley, musician and writer-director of the film Sorry to Bother You. When you try to write a scene, what you have to do is fight cliche because we'll write these scenes that seem a lot like all these other scenes that were written. We write about the world in the way that it's been written before. So rebellion ends up not being in a lot of the art, and it shapes what we think is possible. Boots was raised with radical politics from a young age. A self-described and vocal communist, he formed the influential political hip-hop group The Coup in 1991. But since studying film in college, Boots has long been gearing up to direct, and at 47, he achieved this dream with his debut film, Sorry to Bother You. Recently, American Masters podcast producer Joe Skinner was able to sit down and talk with Boots. Hey, we're thrilled to have Boots Riley in the studio today, writer-director of the film Sorry to Bother You, an essential film for our time about media, capitalism, labor, and race. Boots, me and you have something in common. I. My dad started his career as a UPS driver. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, I, I actually wasn't a driver. I was working loading the plane bellies so the drivers would come deliver there, and we'd uh, load up the plane bellies and then hide in the, you know, and whenever we could, if there was a plane that was going to be leaving much later, we'd uh, go hide in the bellies and either take a nap or rap with each other or whatever and just hang out there. And that's what started the coup? What started the coup is I was tired of working there and just telling everybody that I was going to make, make an album. And um, one New Year's Eve, 10 o'clock, I decided, you know, with the sort of resolution thing, not only was I going to make a resolution to actually record something, it was going to be the next morning. And so I went through the phone book and decided whatever studio answered, I was going to take all my money from UPS and spend it with them that next day, whichever one would answer and open up on New Year's Day. And that was New Year's Day, 1991. Hmm. And, uh, and I didn't have a car, but my boy E-Rock did, who ended up becoming the other rapper in the coup as on the way to the studio. I was like, you should be in it too. Yeah, I feel like the squeaky wheel gets the grease is kind of a recurring theme in your career. And your parents, they were involved in the NAACP, right? And your grandmother was involved in the Oakland Ensemble Theater? So my father was in the NAACP from the time that he was 12 in Durham, North Carolina, and then joined Corps, then moved to the Bay Area, joined more radical organizations like SDS and uh, Progressive Labor Party. And by the time I was eight, he he was burnt out, which he's he went back years later and started getting more involved in stuff. But yeah, my grandmother on my mother's side ran Oakland Ensemble Theater in the 70s and 80s. And was all of this influential in your in your work? I think so, yeah. I mean, you know, there's several ways to tell a story, and it's kind of sometimes it's just whatever you're thinking about right then, and you forget something that was really influential or whatever. But, I, you know, being around, uh, I remember seeing my grandmother put on a production of Flash Gordon, you know, it wasn't just a 
play because I had seen my sister in plays and stuff like that, and which was for me as a kid like just a lot of talking and arguing on stage or something like that. But this was like people in spacesuits and running and laser guns going off. And I just remember thinking about just this, the spectacle that was being had. And so that was from a young age. And, and then seeing her act and do poetry and things like that, that definitely had a lot to do with me feeling like you can just go out and do the things you want to do. I mean, that in com- combination with stuff that my father did. So it's hard to, to say exactly what it is. Did they want you to get involved in politics when you were young? Uh, no, I think that's why I did get involved in it. I mean, they didn't they did not want me to, but it wasn't pushed. And like I said, uh, by the time I was eight, my father had gone back to law school and become a lawyer. And his form of activism at the time was being a criminal defense lawyer and then later doing civil rights stuff had they been pushing that on me then I wouldn't have seen it as my own and uh, although I knew they had been involved in stuff so I knew that once I started getting involved in organizing um, I started getting involved in helping farm workers organize a union in Central California Valley but I knew that I wouldn't be one of those kids whose parents were mad at them for doing that But yeah, no, it it was very much, it felt like my own thing. Was it art that came first or was it the activist roots? Mm, It's hard to, I mean, yeah, all, I mean, all those things were around. Like when I was a kid, I remember my father coming home with his ribs bandaged up and me asking him what happened. And he said, well, we went to fight the Klan in Chicago because we were in Detroit at the time. We went to fight the Klan in Chicago, and one of them got me with the two-by-four in the back. And, you know, as opposed, you know, and, and, and I remember thinking how he wasn't feeling sorry for himself. He was just feeling like, oh, man, you know, I let them get me, you know, that sort of a thing. Yeah, so I knew that all of that was there, but then later when I was like 11 and 12, I definitely wanted to be Prince, so... That existed, and at the same time, I was addicted to television, and then by the time I was 14, I got involved in organizing. So it feels like, and and I was taking piano, trumpet, guitar, all of those things were happening at the same time. Yeah, I feel like you've talked a lot about in other interviews about how those worlds aren't that separate anyway. You know, the story about the two-by-four is such a striking image and it's just a powerful story. And you've talked a lot about the power of storytelling. And so in politics, through art. And so I guess I'm curious, you know, how does popular art inform our collective politics? Well, it's interesting. I think um, one way to investigate that is if anybody listening is a writer or someone that creates in some way, uh, especially with writing music or a novel or a screenwriter, You'll notice that when you try to write a scene, a lot of what you tend to do at first is tending to lean toward cliché, whether you write it down or not. But in your mind, what you have to do is fight cliché because we'll write these scenes that seem a lot like all these other scenes that were written. And you, you start thinking about it, and so much of what's in our brain 
is this other art that we've seen that represents life, not li- not the life itself, because then if you like try to transcribe a breakup that you had, it will feel weird because it's not like these movie scenes that you've seen. It won't feel cinematic. It won't have the beats that they gave it. If I think about Delhi in India, I've never been there, and I, I actually have never seen a documentary that takes place there. But I have a picture of it in my head. It feels clear. It feels vivid, like what the people are wearing, what the street sounds sound like, what the even some of the textures and all of that stuff. And it's not from me. It's not from my life, but it's probably from a James Bond movie or something like that. But if I'm to visually picture that, that's the picture that's in my head. And therefore, like, it also makes up my idea of what the world is. And you see that when people write films or or songs, like, it's not that they haven't experienced a life that has rebellion and movements and things like that in it. Why? Because there's no way you can get away from it. It's around us. Like, even the lack of it that people are going, you know, I want to get away from my small town in Idaho and I want to go there. It's because they know about something that they want to get to, right? But when we write about this stuff, we write about the world in the way that it's been written before. Or we have this tendency to feel like that is the world and anything else is it. So so rebellion ends up not being in a lot of the art. And it shapes what we think is possible. So I think uh, that's the influence that pop culture and art has on us is it shapes our idea of the world and what's possible. Yeah, what's something I really appreciated about Sorry to Bother You is that every time I see a film about class, I feel like it's approaching it with hypernatural form, and I feel like you've really cut against that grain with your film. That is something special about your movie. Well, thank you. I mean, part of it is just having just the years of trying to do it. And so for me, it's not something special. It's just that I've spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. Well, the film had a pretty circuitous origin. How did the idea first come to you? Well, I've done telemarketing couple times in my life. One one time in my life was when I had like a what I thought was a midlife crisis when I was 24. And I decided that I'd been wasting my life being an artist, my adult life being an artist, and gotten away from organizing. And so I quit doing music and we created an organization called the Young Comrades. And I knew I was good at sales. So I did that. And a lot of Really funny stories, most of them that didn't make it into the movie got in there because really the movie is not so much about telemarketing as just life, and I didn't want it to just be the telemarketing movie. You know, I went to film school and and quit when we got a record deal, so I'd been wanting to make a film. I went to film school, and, and ever since then I've, I've kind of run into this problem over and over again, trying to help out friends with films, where it's just really hard to find money. And of all the art forms, I feel like film is deeply tied to money. And it just presents these challenges, I imagine, kind of balancing your, your political values 
with attracting money and, and funding for your work? I mean, how do you navigate that as an activist and sometimes self-labeled communist? Well, I didn't have problems around the, po- at least the problems around the politics. And first of all, I'm always uh, call myself a communist, but um, the, the problems were more with the form. Nobody, when we tried to get this funded, talked about the fact that the background of it was a militant strike. They're too busy looking at seeing whether I'm going to pull the rabbit out of the hat to see what's happening in this hand. So, you know, that wasn't literally... uh, So there were way more people that would have been on board, supposedly, according to them, had I not had some of the stranger things that were in the movie in there. That actually wasn't a problem for me, the politics of it. However, maybe... It would have been had I not had the other stuff that was way more out there, you know. What do you say to people that, that kind of reject the idea of communism still and, and still compare it to the way it was in the 50s? That, how do you respond to people that react harshly to the term communism? Well, first I, I give them what the definition of communism that I believe that, that defines what people are fighting for or hope for the, the world. And that how I define it is that we want a world in which the people democratically control the wealth that we create with our labor. Very few people can disagree with that. You know, matter of fact, I've been in some debates with people that were staunchly saying, I'm against communism, and can you disagree with that, that we should have that? No, they can't disagree with that. So here's the thing. The big question then becomes, well, how do we have a world like that? How do we create a world like that? You know, what are these things? What are these things that we put in place? How do we make sure that we don't keep being exploited and have economic theft going on? Those things are called communism. It doesn't mean that um, there have been victories and defeats and mistakes and terrible things that have happened. But I could rattle off, you know, thing after thing that's happened under capitalism, you know, under folks that considered themselves capitalists and were capitalists and and because of capitalism. I could do that. We could play that game and I'd win. But my point is this, is that just because other folks have claimed that they were going towards something and either went veered off in a different way or whatever doesn't mean we shouldn't keep fighting for what's right it's just like if you know if someone was saying that they were trying to stop murders but they didn't stop a murder would you be like we should stop trying to stop murders you wouldn't you know what 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 people that call themselves communists and socialists are doing is saying they want to stop economic exploitation. Most people will agree that that's something that shouldn't be. The question is, how do we get there? And we should look at mistakes of the past. There are some people that would be like, I'm not going to call myself a communist or a socialist because, you know, there were these mistakes of the past and they want to separate themselves from that critique. But we're all born of the past. We, you know, none of us came here out of the blue and we have to look at those things so that we don't make those same mistakes. And, you know, sometimes if you separate yourself from 
that word or that tradition, then you can separate yourself from that critique and re redo those same things. Many of the folks that would have, you know, 20 years ago been like, you know, there's surveillance going on in the Soviet Union as a, as a statement of the problems that were happening in the Soviet Union. Many of them are accepting of all the surveillance we have going on here under capitalism. They're accepting of every, all of the bad things that they said were going on under, under the Soviet Union, and many of which were, are accepted under capitalism. None of the good things about people having the things that they need are happening under capitalism, but all of the bad things are. So if you had to address a union organizer out there or a political activist out there, would you encourage them to pursue the arts to tell their message? Well, first, I would encourage someone who is an artist to also become an organizer so that they understand what they should what they should be talking about. You know, like not just like what the campaigns are and what other organizations are talking about, but meaning like interacting with folks and trying to get them to do things and figuring out what questions people have about their life. Like, should I be involved with this? You know, where do I drop my kids off? You know, any little thing, like what are the questions that artists should be asking or answering? Because otherwise, without having some experience organizing and talking to folks and trying to get them to do things, we think that the question is this whole other thing because we see it on social media or we see it in the news and we start asking these questions that are misguided in the first place that aren't the point. So I would say that separately, I would say that everyone, every human should be an artist. You know, unfortunately, many of us don't have the time to do that. Like everyone has some sort of thing that they should be able to express, and it should be beyond, be able to be beyond a conversation you, you can have. It should have to do with those words and between words, and we all have those things that we should be able to express. But the way that we work, you know, we barely have time to, you know, be around our loved ones after we work or whatever. So that's hard. But being that I think every person should be an artist, I think that organizers should express themselves in many ways too. And it helps you to just understand other folks. And here's the thing. I don't think I have to say that. Most of the organizers that I've met are some sort of artists as well because we're all looking for ways to express it. It's not like I have to like encourage organizers to to figure out how to create it. Sometimes it, it just seems many times to to be hand in hand. A good friend of mine is an or, a union organizer and a drummer on the side and I'm constantly seeing those worlds intermingle. Um, but so what's really on your mind right now? What do you think is an especially important thought for today? Well, I think that right now so many people are incensed with the things that are blatantly happening in our world, you know, everything from these companies uh, acting more and more like they're acting in my film, just bare naked capital being unafraid to uh, show itself in the political realm and the interests of the ruling class, those sorts of things. Everyone is incensed. 
What I'm worried about is all of these problems have existed before the Trump presidency. And what I saw happen during Bush's presidency was people attributed all the problems to Bush. And it was just about getting Bush out. And many of those same problems kept existing while Obama was in office. And because we had attributed the problems to Bush, people gave up on fighting those things. What I'm hoping is that there's more of a direct line of analysis to show the connection between many of these problems that we're having to capitalism itself, to the economic system that we're having. Because we have an opportunity here for people to join movements and to create movements. In drawing that, in showing that analysis, having people see where their actual power is. And that power isn't just at the ballot box. It's in literally at their place of work, where they work. Because, you know, we all understand that those with the wealth are the ones with the power, that that wealth gives them the power, but we give them the wealth. You know, we can turn the purse strings that, they're, that they have into our own puppet strings and control the whole system through that. So I'm hoping that people start organizing at their places of work around the things that we, we need, which are things like increases in wages and health care and things like that, but extending to other social issues as well. Um, there's an interesting documentary that happens to be on YouTube, but it's from Sydney, Australia in the 70s, and it's called Breaking the Foundations, and it's about this construction union that, that actually got so powerful that they would shut things down um, to help out politi grassroots political campaigns of, for, uh, and things that were happening in other cities because they were able to just shut down production and shut down and stop profit and, and win victories in that way. And I think that that's, that's what I'm concerned with is that I think that if we don't show people how they can change things, that people will just start throwing up their hands even more and just decide that there's nothing they can do. Just before we sign off, the theme of our season is, is heroes and people that have inspired you. And I guess I was just wondering real quick if you could rattle off three people, three artists or political figures that have really inspired you. Mm. I'd say uh, Paul Robeson, Amiri Baraka, and um, Joe Hill. Thanks so much for coming in. All right, thank you. Paul Robeson was a full-on Renaissance man, a gifted athlete, actor, singer, scholar, author, and political activist. His talents made him a revered man of his era, but his radical politics wiped him from the history books for a long time. Blacklisted during the McCarthy era for his sympathies towards communism, Robeson's a hero to many for his performances and for his political stances. Here's his son and archivist, Paul Robeson Jr. I think Dad consciously prepared me for the job I would have to do as the next generation. And, and to do that, I think he consciously freed me from a certain relation to authority. He needed to teach me to overcome fear and rage. You have to be able to control both rage and fear and channel it into useful energy. If you can't do that, either you'll eat your heart out. 
or you'll suppress the rage and go through with your head down all the time. If you're going to challenge anything, you have to be under total control. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton, with sound engineering by Josh Broom, John Berman, and Gerard Collins. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs, supervising producer Junko Sunishima, and production coordinator Krista Campbell. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. The 1998 interview with Paul Robeson Jr. is an outtake from American Masters' Paul Robeson, Here I Stand, directed by St. Clair Bourne. We'd also like to thank the American Masters interns for their contributions to this episode. Dylan McKenna, Haley Rosenberg, and Talia Smith. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. And please give us a rating or review. See you in a couple weeks.